0: Good evening everyone, good day Bruce, well good to be here, let's pray. Father we do thank you we can be here tonight and as we open your word we pray speak into our hearts, our minds, our lives and Father transform us to be that church that is known by your love and your grace and your truth we ask in Jesus name, Amen. Amen. Well tonight we're looking at Luke 6:17 to 49 and I've called it the chat on the flat. Uh, I'll explain why I've called it that shortly uh, but I want to start by reflecting on us as a church. What does it mean to be St Matthews and what is the vision for this place and if I can ask that and get you to turn right and look across there. Uh, You've probably all seen that picture numerous times. I mean, it hangs there all the time. It's not numerous times, it's every time. Um, It's been there since 2009 when I came here and it was after the first teaching series when we went through about the vision of the church. And those two words, in many ways, encapsulate uh, the vision I've had for this place ever since I've come here. And if I can put it into words, um, the vision of the church is to be that church built on Jesus, love, grace and truth that's connecting, gathering, growing and serving. And I want to talk about that reality tonight. Um, lots of places, organisations, um, not just churches, will have some sort of vision statement for their organisation. And it's worth asking the question, not is, what is my vision for this place, but actually the more important question is, what is Jesus' vision for us as a church here in St Matthews? What is his vision for St Matthews? And why have we got those two key words up there to remind us of what our vision is under the Lord Jesus Christ, that church. Now, that church, you'll hear that phrase in all kinds of contexts. I heard it out in the surf the other week. Um, someone I was talking to at the back and they said, oh, you're from that church, that church that has the camels at Christmas time. Okay, so we're that church that does camels at Christmas time. That's one of the reasons we're known. Um, You'll know that people know us as that church that's on the Corso. Over six million people walk past that church. I'm going to finish tonight by talking about a story of someone who walked past here for 10 years before they entered into that church. What is that church? Um, the question I'm interested in, if I can say as the senior minister is, what do people think of us when they think of? that church what's their experience of us when they experience the people from that church what's their view of God and their understanding of the gospel from their interaction with the people from that church you see the vision is that we will be that church that is built on that is known by Jesus grace love and truth as we connect, as we gather, as we grow and as we serve. And we come tonight to Luke chapter 6 verse 17 to 49. And there's no doubt there's a lot of similarity between this passage and what we did in detail with the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 to 7 in term 4 last year, just six months ago. And so as we're going through Luke's Gospel, we come to a very parallel passage that we spent seven weeks diving into last year and I thought we would do a different way of looking at the text tonight. Uh, There's no doubt you could take four sermons out of this material that we've got before us but I want to do it in one hit to kind of stand back a bit and look at the text and ask the question, what is the vision that Jesus has for us as that church? that is down on the corso, that does camels, that people walk past all the time. What is Jesus' vision for us? Well, let me just give you a few introductory observations from the text. So if you got your Bibles there? Get them open. Uh, as always, we want to look at what the Word of God says to us tonight. And the passage is a long one. Uh, Michelle did a great job reading it. It's a longer than usual reading. And there's a fair bit to cover, but we're going to do it in different ways. Firstly, if I can say, this is Luke's version the Sermon on the Mount. Now have a look at verse 17. Uh, He went down with them and stood on a level place. That's why I've called it the chat on the flat. Um, When you go to Matthew's Gospel, they go up to a hill to a mountain. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Now you ask the question, well who got it right? Did Luke get it wrong? Did Matthew get it wrong? Was it a chat on the flat? Was it a sermon on the Mount? Well no, it's both. How does that work? Um, Jesus when he taught, didn't, if I can say, set up headquarters in one place, on the flat or on the mountain and invite people to come. Uh, He did the opposite. He went around. (coughs) He was what's called an occasional teacher. Um, He walked and he talked. And so as you read through the Gospels, you see this reality that Jesus goes from town to town. And so you shouldn't be surprised that you see similar material being presented in different places. Now... If I go around from place to place and preach, you wouldn't be surprised that I would have similar material. I don't. I'm in the same place, so I've got to come up with different material all the time. But if you hear itinerant preachers, they will have the same message in different places. Now, what's also worth noting is um, there are some differences and there's some similarities. And so as you read through this, you hear the echoes of the Sermon on the Mount in the chat on the flat, but you also see some differences. Now, that shouldn't surprise you also. Um, Even here... My sermon at 8 o'clock is different to 10 o'clock, is different to 5 o'clock, is different to 6.30. Um, The problem I always have at 6.30 is I think of new things to say through the day and it slightly gets longer and I try and apologise for that. But anyway, you guys get the best at the end. That's my saying. Okay? Now, if you came at 10 o'clock, you only got half a sermon today. Uh, We had a lady collapse and we had to call the ambulance and it was game over for me and we just prayed, celebrated communion, had to finish up. And I said to them, listen to the web, you'll get the second half on on the podcast. Um, So this is Luke's version. It's not the same as Matthew, it's similar to Matthew. Second point, it's a description again of what it means to follow Jesus. And we saw this last year. You've got the crowds gathering. Have a look. We read on. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who'd come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Now, let me just say, there's an incredible ministry going on here. Jesus is going from village to village and he stops on occasion, and if I can say, because he wants to instruct the crowds that are gathering. There was a pattern to his ministry. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God. Repent, the kingdom is near. He was demonstrating his authority and that the kingdom was near by his miraculous ministry. Those signs and wonders that happen are to tell you that this Jesus is the one who has all authority. It's revealing his identity as the Son of God who's come amongst us. And people are thrilled, they're wondering, they're excited. And as Luke says, there's power coming from him. It's a very striking phrase. Hundreds, thousands coming. Jesus' concern, not to do more miracles, but rather to help people understand what does it mean to be a follower, a disciple, as these crowds gather. And so he stops here on the flat for a chat. He stopped on the mountain for a sermon. Well, they're the same, really. The same thing's happening though. He's instructing them about discipleship. See, have a look at verse 20. Um, looking at his disciples, he says to them. So the crowds are there, but the ones who, in a sense, who are keen, he's looking to them and he's saying to them, this is what it means to be a disciple. Uh, verse 27, but I tell you who hear me. Again, he's talking to those who've got ears to hear. And then you've got kind of a sting in the tail at the end, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord and do not do what I say? And then he tells the famous story of the wise and the foolish builder. This teaching, this chat on the flat is a description of what it means to follow Jesus. It's his vision for the disciples for how they should live in the world. Third thing, there are two ways of living that Jesus is presenting here. Uh, there's a critique in the first instance of, if I can say, the religious life of those in the time of Israel that Jesus is ministering. And alongside that is this stark contrast of how he wants disciples to live within their culture. There are two ways. You see, there are blessings and there are woes. You could say blessings and curses for two types of people. Uh, There are two ways to love. There is the way that people will normally respond to others and call that love. And then there's the way that Jesus calls his disciples to love, which is radically different. Uh, There are two sorts of teachers. Basically, some are hypocrites, Jesus says. There are two trees. One bears good fruit, one bears bad fruit. The difference, the heart. And then there are two builders. There is a wise builder and there's a foolish builder. The difference is the way they not just listen to Jesus, the way they obey Jesus. That is the crux of the matter. Do they put into practice Jesus' words? And so there is a radical way that's being presented for Jesus' followers who will say, yes, I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus. That stands in stark contrast to how the people of that day and age Living and it's worth saying it's no different for us today. You see, his vision for us today is that we will be his followers who are radically different in how we live from the culture around us. Fourthly, it's worth recognizing that Jesus wants to encourage us. He says, If you want to follow me, there is great blessing. And, brothers and sisters, do remember that. Uh, Have a look at the way it starts. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. You see, wants to encourage you? If you're going to follow me, there is great blessing. You will have the kingdom. You will be satisfied. You will laugh. There'll be a joy about you. There's a satisfaction of knowing and living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And even when people hate you or exclude you or reject you because of me, great will be your reward in eternity and so his encouragement is for those who will follow there is blessing now there is blessing later hold on to that friends because there also is woe and judgment for those who don't and lastly and if I can return to our vision I think the three key things that describe as foundational for disciples are grace love and truth and it's worth saying the reason why we have that in our vision statement built on jesus grace love and truth is i think they are such foundational um stones for us as jesus people you can't be a disciple without understanding his grace his love and his truth they are the three deep foundations that will shape a follower of the lord jesus christ and I think those three pillars, those three foundations are, the if I can say, the foundation for this vision of discipleship that Jesus has. And so let's have a look um, at Jesus' grace, love and truth. So I want to go through one at a time. Firstly, his grace. Uh, and let me just talk a little bit about grace and the three ways that people try and relate to God. I think there are three ways. Uh, the first way is merit. Um, you will see this way illustrated in most of the religions of the world the common tendency people have is to think of God as some divine lawgiver he's kind of like a divine accountant Uh, and there's a debit and ledger sheet in heaven and you will have those who rack up the debits and those who rack up the credits and the idea is to try and have higher on the debit side uh, credit side than the debit side in other words uh, you've got more brownie points than bad points if I can use that language And the way God assesses you is there's kind of a bar that you've got to meet to gain his approval and so you merit favour. That's the essence of how so many people think it was the essence of how the Pharisees in Jesus' day thought. It's the essence of how the world religions work today. It's the essence of how, if I can say, just normal religious people think. God is up there. There's some bar that you've got to attain to and merit and your good works enable you to merit his favour. It's the way of religion, that's the first way. The second way is the way of licence. You see, it's the exact opposite. Um, The first group, the religious, actually have a fear of God. They're concerned about do they have a relationship with God and they try and merit that. The other group actually don't give a fig about God. Uh, They're the irreligious And they actually don't care about God's approval and you'll see lots of them in Manly. Uh, Let me say, they're nice people, if I can say at one level, you'll catch them out in the surf, you'll see them in the coffee shops, you'll see them in the restaurants. They couldn't give a fig about God though. And though they may have some belief that God is out there, well, don't try and cramp my style. Don't let him interrupt my life. That's the irreligious I don't care about God. Now, you'll see both examples in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. What's the first son, the one that goes and grabs his father's inheritance before the father dies and spends it up big time? Well, he's the irreligious. I don't give a fig about God. Uh, I'm just going to go and live life for myself. He's the irreligious. There's another brother, though, who's the religious. And you see, when the younger son and the younger brother comes back and is forgiven... By the Father, the religious son is outraged. That's not fair. You see, because his understanding of how you relate to God is on the basis of merit. And what you 've done, Dad, is just outrageous. There are the two typical ways people relate to God, but there's a third way it's grace. With grace, you do not gain God's approval on the basis of your performance you gain his favor on the basis of his mercy you see grace says actually you failed and God forgives you you're broken and God remakes you you're a sinner God restores you grace is God's incredible unmerited favor And I start with grace in terms of thinking of these three ideas because, you see, your experience of God's grace or lack thereof will profoundly change and affect you as a person and how you think of the world around you. And I want you to have a look at this introductory part of the chat on the flat, the blessings and the woes. You see, who are these people who are blessed? Who are the poor? Who are the hungry? Who are the ones who are weeping but yet standing up for Jesus in the world to the extent that they're hated, excluded, rejected. When you read through the Old Testament, these categories of humble, uh, sorry, of poor, of hungry and weeping relate to a category of people who, if I can use one word, they are the spiritually humble. They are the ones who knew the reality of their own sin and did not try and bargain with God on the basis of merit, but on the basis of forgiveness and mercy. And they cried out to God for his mercy and forgiveness. Uh, They knew that in God's eyes, they had nothing they could bring to merit favour. They were poor, they were bankrupt. And there was a weeping of sin. Uh, There was a hunger for the living God himself. They are the humble. They know they have nothing to offer God and they relate to him on the basis of grace. And you see the rich, the well-fed, the, uh, the laughing, if you want one word to describe them, and you see this in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament, it is the proud. They think they merit God's favour. They think they're acceptable and you see the thing that defines them is that they are self-righteous. They think they're great. They're self-seeking. What they have is not for others and for God's use, it is for themselves. They're self-indulgent. What defines them is self. And scripture is very clear about the difference between the two. 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now it's worth stopping and thinking about the category of rich because the reality is all of us here actually are pretty rich, uh, myself included. Now the easy thing to do is to look in the room and say, actually they've got a bigger job than me, they've got more money than me. Uh, Actually I'm just a student, Um, I haven't got as much. The reality is we're in one of the most expensive areas in sydney in one of the most wealthy countries in the world and we are in the top five percent some of you may be higher you see we are rich and the question is not i think whether we have money but what do we do with money and what hold does money have on us And you will see two people who are rich in Luke's gospel. One, the money has a hold on them. And that's what they trust in and that's what they live for. And God says to that man, you fool. Your life will be demanded from you this night. It's in Luke chapter 12. We're going to come to it. You also meet another man who is rich but knows he's poor. And he would have been filthy rich. He was the chief tax collector. His name's Zacchaeus. He's well known. And Jesus goes and saves this rich guy. And the way money had a hold on him is loosened and the way he views money is changed and he gives money away. To any he ripped off, it says, he repaid back numerous times. You see, the reality is, what is your view of yourself? Do you see yourself as someone who has been profoundly forgiven, that you have nothing to bring except to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for you? This is grace. And you see, these are the people who are blessed, the ones who are humble, the ones who are given grace. And you see the way it outworks in this chat on the flat. When you see yourself as being, if I can say, self-righteous and you relate to God on the basis of merit, what inevitably happens is this. You build yourself up because you think, I must be a better person to be someone whom God likes. And so you will have your bar or standard of approval that God sets. Now, the interesting thing is we always set it at a level we think we can achieve in the level that we're living at. We don't want to make too many changes. But we will have some bar set in terms of what merits God's approval and inevitably if you live like that, what happens is you'll transfer that bar across to the rest of the people in the world. Look, I'm living this way, why don't they? They should work harder. Um, They should do more. They're not good enough and you see inevitably when you work on the basis of merit in relating to God it profoundly affects how you view every other person You see that in the parable of the lost son The elder son does not rejoice that his brother is redeemed and forgiven He thinks it's not fair He didn't meet the bar And this is what happens to our hearts when we relate to God on the basis of merit, we start judging and condemning other people. You see, that's what Jesus is saying: um, Do not judge, and you'll not be judged. Do not condemn, you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You see, when grace touches your life, this is how you view yourself: I've got nothing. This is how grace changes your view of yourself. I am no better than anyone else. The only difference is God has opened my eyes so that I can see and understand his mercy and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ and I can take hold of that. And so the way you see yourself then affects how you start to see the world. Actually, I'm no better than anyone else on this planet their skin colour, their creed, their background, their religious beliefs. I am no better than them. The only difference is God has opened my eyes so I can see. And you start looking with people and look upon them. Rather than judgment and condemnation, you have mercy and compassion. And you see, that's why we want to have a discussion and prayer about justice and mercy ministries. You see, have a look at the passage on loving your enemies, how it finishes, verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You will be sons, daughters of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Jesus' vision for His people is that we will be transformed by his grace and his mercy and we will reflect that in how we treat people Uh, you see the tree and its fruit you see what's the difference between a tree that bears good fruit and a tree that doesn't bear good fruit it's our hearts and you see our hearts need to be touched and changed by the grace and mercy of God so that they are now humble and full of love and mercy and forgiveness and compassion. Well, the second thing is love. The great mark of the Christian faith is love. Jesus says we're to be known by it. And you see, if grace changes my view of God and my view of myself and how I see the world, it will then issue us in loving people. You see, when you receive grace, you receive God's love and it will change you how you view other people. It will cause you to want to love people who you've not previously loved. You see, the way the world you see here described by the Lord Jesus is, uh, the world loves their friends. Uh, The world loves those who do good to them. Uh, The world loves those who will pay back. In other words, I'll look after you because I know you're going to look after me. Uh, I'll love you because you're a nice person and it's kind of good to love you and be friends with you. Jesus says, well, that's just what anyone does. There's nothing distinctive about that. Actually, if you want to be my follower, be like me because it's interesting. When you read through this description, you cannot but see it being prophetic about what will happen to him in person at the cross. I tell you, love your enemies. Uh, as he went to the cross, all his friends had disappeared. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you as he was hanging on the cross. Did he not pray, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing? Uh, Pray for those who will treat you. The very thing he did. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Did they not strike and beat him? And Peter records, there was not a word that came from his mouth. There was no response. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Did they not take his clothes and gamble them away, the Roman soldiers, as they were beating him uh, mercilessly? Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. You see, Jesus is saying to them, Love, in a way, I will love the world. And he did that on the cross in the most profound way. And that is the example of love that is to be our model as we live in this world. I want you to think about the people you find most difficult who are your enemies? I'm sure you've probably got people who you don't like. I'm sure you've got people who don't like you. And it can be for completely unjust reasons. And one of the things we'll do is say to ourselves, that's not fair. I didn't do anything to deserve this, don't we? They're just nasty people. And let, you know, the reality is there are nasty people out there who will do that. And they'll be completely unjust in how you'll treat you. And Jesus' response is, having said to them, well, if you follow me, there's going to be people who hate you, exclude you, and reject you, not because you're a bad person, not because of dumb things, which we do do, and that does cause problems, and it's not good to do, um, but simply because you stand for me. And when that happens, my call to you is love them. My call to you is give to them. My call to you is not to judge, not to condemn them, but rather, I want you to to forgive them. This is what it means to be his people in the world. Uh, We are to be affected so much by his grace, so humbly we walk in this world that we take on the cause of Christ and we love in a way that is supernatural. Truth. The fundamental essence of Christianity is Jesus. He is the person we follow and trust. And it is worth repeating the Christian faith is not a philosophy that we comprehend, though it does involve serious thinking. It will stretch your mind in ways you've never thought possible. It's not a religion that we conform to that is, in essence, defined by rules and regulations though it will radically change how you live as you listen to the Lord Jesus and obey him. You see, at heart, it's a relationship with the creator of the world through his son, the Lord Jesus. And truth is a person. Truth is God. Truth is God incarnate in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. You see, his words and teaching are truth. He defines reality, he describes reality because he is truth. What is a disciple? It's someone who has received mercy from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's someone who knows his love and it's someone who knows that Jesus is the truth and they live according to his word. And you see, that's why, if I can say, the chat on the flat starts with the person of Jesus and his truth and it finishes with the person and his truth. You see, a disciple is someone who will stand up for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world, whatever may cost them. They stand for him because they stand for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a disciple is someone who does not just say, Lord, Lord. There's someone who puts into practice Jesus' words. I'll show you what he's like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a person building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. And when the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like the person who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Jesus' vision is that you will build your life on him who is the truth by listening to his word and putting it into practice. And his promise is when you do that, you will be this immovable force in the world. It does not matter what comes against you. It will not strike you down, be it sickness or famine or strife or anxiety or any of the issues of life or opposition or persecution. You will be this immovable, strong force, strengthened and built on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the truth of Christ that we are to define our life by Will shape us and strengthen us to live in this world. And you see, that's his vision for the church. That's his vision for every church. And that's his vision for that church down on the Corso at Manly. Someone radically different to this world who is built on his truth, who's been transformed by his grace and who demonstrates his love. And that's why we've got those two words up there, that church, because that is my vision for this place, that we will be such a group of disciples and followers of the Lord Jesus that when people meet you, when people meet me, what they see, what they experience, what they hear is someone who follows the Lord Jesus. They experience grace and mercy from you. You see, their experience of us should be the experience of the gospel, someone who treats them better than they deserve. Their experience of us should be one of mercy and kindness and forgiveness, even when it's not merited or deserved in any way, shape or form. Their experience of us as his people should be one where they're hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ and the wonderful truth of the gospel such that they say that's the place that does not make sense. I've never seen a group of people like that. There's something divine about them. There was a lady who walked past this church for 10 years And she often wondered what happened in that church. She often thought, I'd like to go into that church. But she was never brave enough. She lives here on the Corso. One day a friend came who'd become a Christian and said, I'm going to go to church. And she came and stayed with her. And she invited her to come down to that church on the Corso. And she wandered in about a year ago. And she discovered at that church that there was a truth, there was a love, there was a grace that she'd never seen before. She was wonderfully converted. She was here at 5 o'clock tonight. She's had no church background. But down at that church, she discovered Jesus through his people. That's the vision of Jesus his church that's our vision whether we are connecting with the world whether we are gathering here on a sunday whether we're in a small group growing in our faith whether we're serving wherever we are we are known we are built on this reality of what it means to be a disciple people known by jesus grace love and truth Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace that touches our hearts and changes just who we are, how we see ourselves, how we see this world. And Father, we just thank you for this vision of discipleship that we have with the Lord Jesus. May we be that church that shines like a light in the darkness and draws people to Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.